doctors stitched a ride with a bunch of potheads. Hey, look, I'm trying to hook up with some people at this funky place in downtown Detroit called Disco Inferno. You mind dropping me there? What's the word to you? The hell is that supposed to mean? <laughs> Doesn't mean anything. No attention. It's more like Disco's Inferno. Oh, what's going What is up? It's your boy, Jake the Snake Robinson, from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Holler if you hear me. Half man, half podcast machine. Shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio show that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. 
Want to welcome everyone in. Backwards K Pod is available on all podcast platforms, wherever you listen to your pods, or you can visit my website, diamondsnakejake.podbean.com. Uh, for this or any of the shows in my vault of archives there, I would ask of my growing seamhead army to subscribe, download, share, rate, and review as you see fit. I'm consistent like Carew, baby. I come through every Tuesday with that baseball fire. And it's always free. I will never send you a monthly bill for this content. The economy is awful. And I'm not here to nickel and dime you through Patreon and other crowdsourcing methods. Not going to do it. And look, you guys know the deal by now. I'm all over the web. You can find me on Twitter at jrobbie1. That's J-R-O-B-B-I-E-1, the, the number one. Or the show account at backwards underscore K underscore podcast. And I'm not really sure to, what to expect from Twitter in the future. I'll certainly be keeping an eye on that. I, I'm, uh, I'm not about all the drama and divisiveness that goes on in the world. I'm about baseball. It's all I care about. 24-7, 365 days a year. Uh, if any of that garbage bleeds over into me focusing entirely on baseball, then I'm out. So just a heads up. For now, we're there on Twitter, and we'll play it by ear going forward, which is whatever, because I really don't know how to grow a grassroots Twitter page anyway without saying or doing, you know, controversial things. And I just don't have time to entertain device or trolls anymore. I, I, I just don't have the time, and I ain't got the patience. I don't need Twitter to be successful. This show was already successful, and Twitter has had virtually nothing to do with it. So... I'm there for now, but if it gets banana fruitcake in there, or the page doesn't grow with the show, then it won't be. And I'm just keeping it transparent with the seam heads. Uh, honestly, Facebook has had a much bigger positive impact on this show. And you can find me there at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network private group page. And I don't know, maybe it's because I'm old and my audience is not limited to, but big time Gen X. And whatever it is. You can always find me there. Come on in. The most comprehensive and interactive baseball room in the book with thousands of baseball fans from around the globe. That's the uh, Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network private Facebook group page. Now, before I get started on this week's topic, I want to thank my audience for the kind words on last week's Wrigley Field show. Like I said last week, I'm not sure what it is, but... Chicago has always been great to me. The numbers out of Illinois were fantastic last week. And I just want to say again, thank you. It's crazy. I mean, every form of podcast I've ever done, Chicago's always top three, top five downloads. I, I feel like we are kindred souls, you and I, Chicago. So much so, I don't even want to leave. So this week, I'm going from the North Side Cubbies to the South Side White Sox. But... Before I do that, I want to share a message I received from Omar in Chicago last week. uh, He writes, I was working in the bleachers at Wrigley, and I never got a foul ball or a home run ball or anything like that. All of us working the bleachers were on high alert because the next home run Ryan Sandberg would hit would become number 200, and he was willing to swap a bunch of stuff for whoever got the ball. So the day comes... He hits it into the batter's background where fans are not allowed. And any ball that was hit there was our responsibility to retrieve it. So I go get it. My supervisor comes down, extends his hand. And without thinking, I hand the ball over. And the second I released my grip, I said, fuck. 
I should have refused and said, I'm a fan and I'll take the swap. 31 years later, still no foul ball or home run ball. And that's a great story. I mean, I can't tell you how many Wrigley stories I heard in the past week. And uh, that's a great one, man. I I hope you get a home run ball or a foul ball one day. I've gotten three in my lifetime. I got one. For, I got a home run ball by Calvin Jr. I got a foul ball by Javi Lopez, and I also got a home run ball by Billy Butler. So I've been lucky to have that happen three times. I hope that one day you get your ball, my friend. And you know what a great story. And I can't even pretend, begin to tell you like. All the Wrigley stories I heard, I heard this week. Just a great outpouring from that show. And the snake is truly blessed by our factions. But hey, the train moves on. And like I said, we're going to go from the north side of the Windy City down to the south side to perform our uh, audio autopsy on one of the most bizarre and terrifying baseball promotions ever. Disco Demolition Night at Comiskey Park. Now, to go back to that crazy night in July of 1979, I want to set the tone with some of the things that are going on in our orbit at this time as the tumultuous 70s are closing out. Uh, 63 Americans have been taken hostage uh, for 444 days at the American embassy in Tehran, Iran. The Soviets invade Afghanistan. China institutes a one-child-per-family law. Margaret Thatcher is elected Prime Minister of the UK. Sony releases The Walkman and The Snowboard was invented. Oh, and Disco was king. The dance-oriented genre was becoming part of the landscape of America with artists like the Bee Gees, ABBA, Donna Summer, Casey and the Sunshine Band smashing the Billboard's Top 40 charts and even, even influencing films with blockbuster hits like Saturday Night Fever. Starring John Travolta. And while disco appeared to be just this fun, novel outlet for style and dress and music, there really was like this major backlash from fans of rock music. The critics of the day, they openly feared that the rise of disco would quickly lead to the decay in rock after disco music flat out dominated the 21st Grammy Awards in 1978. And it's funny. They, you know, I used to hear that same shit about rap music in the 80s. And it's kind of funny how black music, Latino music, is always a threat to rock and roll. Which, of course, is rooted in black music. <laughs> which I, I just don't understand. But, I digress. One of these dudes who felt threatened and butthurt by disco was a local Chicago morning disc jockey named Steve Dahl. When Chicago's uh, WDAI-FM switched to disco format in 1978, uh, he was fired from there. It was a rock, it was a rock format earlier, uh, became disco, and they fired him. And it sparked like this paradigm shift. Dahl would be quickly snatched up by WLUP, the Loop 98.7, a rival Chicago radio station at the time. And by... Playing off the publicity of being fired, Dahl would create like this mock organization that they called themselves the Insane Coho Lips. And it consisted of his most loyal of loyal anti-disco listeners. Soon, the overnight jock of the station, uh, Gary Meyer, 
would team up with Dahl, and he would become both his sidekick and his new man, uh, newsman. In response to Dahl's firing from WDAI, the duo and their growing audience would openly mock the genre of disco and their fans with like these goofy song parodies and radio bits, like letting a disco record play and then scratching a needle across the record and then finishing off with a bomb sound effect going off. You know, pretty much standard 1970s radio zoo bits. Ultimately, the creative Dahl proved... Uh, you know, he can grow an audience as his show was becoming wildly popular. The number one morning DJ in a top three market. I mean, that is what it is. That's rather impressive if you ask me. Anybody who can hold an audience, I, I admire and for you to be number one in a top three market, it is impressive. So due to the popularity of the two jocks, uh, Mike Vec, the son of owner Bill Vec. He got together with Dahl and Meyer to see if there was any interest in tying a promotion to the White Sox. Now, the White Sox, they were a god-awful team, and I told you last week about how skillful Bill Veck was with the Cubs as a marketing GM. It was Bill, if you remember, who played at the Ivy on the Wrigley Field bricks. And it was his responsibility to put asses in the seats even if the uh, on-field product of the Cubs was subpar. By the time, by this time, Vec owns the White Sox for a second time, and he is a promoter extraordinaire. Uh, nothing in baseball could compete with what was going on in South Chicago. I'm, you know, with their exploding scoreboard, haircuts and showers in the stands, limbo dancers, the circus shows up. Nothing was out of bounds to try. As far as the Vex were concerned. Now, Bill's son, Mike, was now leading the charge. And like his legendary father, nothing was too far of the top for a promotion as far as Mike Vec was concerned. So, Mike Vec, Steve Dahl, they brainchild this disco demolition night on July 12, 1979. And the concept was to kill disco once and for all in center field of the house that Charles built. Any fans showing up to the park that day with a supposed disco record, and I emphasize supposed disco record, but I'll come back to that. If you showed up at the park with your supposed disco record, you were granted entry uh, to a White Sox-Tigers doubleheader for 98 cents. Uh, 98 being the, the, the call numbers for the channel. So they bring this record to get it for 98 cents. Now, the ticket collectors at the gate, they would take your disco record, set it in the bin, and between double headers, those very records would be placed in that bin and blown sky high with dangerous explosives. I mean, you know, what could possibly go wrong? Well, right off the rip, Things went drastically wrong. First of all, Steve Dahl was nervous going into that night. Comiskey was a big stadium. It was a really big stadium. And it was almost always empty by July. When the Sox were, you know, perennially pretty much out of the race. So Dahl's thinking was, if he was able to get 7,000 people to show up, the optics would still look terrible as an additional 7,000 people in Comiskey 
would still make the building appear barren. However, people showing up would not be the problem. The south side streets were full of fired up rock and rollers, buying records, and heading to Comiskey Park. And outside of the park, it was bedlam. Fans were rushing the turnstile. Many records were actual disco records, but a lot of these records were not disco. A lot of them were simply black and Latino-based records. Musicians like Curtis Mayfield, Quincy Jones, Miles Davis were thrown in these bins. These guys are not disco. But at that point, they're just like, yeah, whatever, man, just throw it in. We're going to blow it up anyway. And at this point, the stadium staff is feeling a bit overwhelmed. People are now sneaking into the stadium like cockroaches as every vulnerable spot in the stadium was taken advantage of by the rock and roll hooligans to gain free entry. The concourse hallways were completely full of people. At some point, the stadium staff can no longer store any more disco records in those soon-to-be-destroyed boxes. And they let the remainder of the people still get their ticket for 98 cents and keep the record. Which would prove to be an awful, awful idea. By most estimates, there was at least 10,000 people who were not able to get inside. So they sat outside the stadium and they just tailgated the event. Letting these people keep their records was just another horrible mistake and a long line of them. The first game, it went underway with what many consider the largest Comiskey Park crowded ever at an estimated 60,000 plus fans in attendance. Remember, they, they had to estimate because literally thousands of fans snuck in. The radio station and the White Sox were caught with their pants down as neither of them saw this coming. The first game had to be stopped a few times with cherry bombs flying off the top tier, bottles being hurled, and the records that the fans got to keep, they started whizzing out of the stands with deadly intentions. Tiger center fielder Ron LaFleur, who was discovered in prison by Billy Martin, to this day, he says, it was one of the scariest days of his life. Not a day in prison, this day, as a record came mere inches from going into his neck. The ballpark, it wasn't electric. It was slowly, slowly becoming explosive. As the ballpark full of non-baseball fans were beginning to get restless. During the first game, people outside the stadium had torn down a gate going into the upper deck. They ran up the fire escapes to sit in the upper deck for free. And this created a dangerous situation of no mobility whatsoever in the upper deck. The sheer weight of rowdy rockers made the whole upper deck sway. Comiskey had a capacity of about 50,000 seats. And it was quickly becoming apparent to the Vex that there was at least 10,000 people in a standing room only mode. The stadium was literally bulging as the crowd was chanting, Disco sucks. Meanwhile, the star of the show, Stephen Dahl, in his faux military uniform and military jeep, he began his journey to Comiskey from 35th and Shields. And he noticed that the south side was on anti-disco fire. He analogized it 
as something out of the Blade Runner movie. It was crazy. People were everywhere. And it was then that he realized how huge this thing was becoming now. So Detroit won the first game 4-2. And Mike Vec now getting a perspective on what was going on in his father's stadium. He held his breath as Dahl and his anti-disco entourage entered the stadium in the Jeep through the center field gates. As the DJ made his way into the stadium, they rode around the warning track, and his fans, they went crazy. They're throwing beers at the Jeep, as well as cherry bombs and records. All the while, Dahl is breathing in his moment. The crowd went nuts to total chaos almost immediately upon seeing their hero. Gary Meyer and Steve Dahl, they took center field and issued a proclamation that was kind of cringy. As Dahl admits, uh, he really had nothing plain to say. <laughs> okay? I mean, how can you have nothing planned to say is beyond me. I'm just saying, Snake would have been prepared. So he gets on the mic and he starts screaming at the top of his head, which is, you know, it's just a microphone no-no. And he starts singing his Rod Stewart parody. I mean, it was a mess. And it would have turned into something so much more than a mess. From short center field, Dahl tells a rabid crowd that he has a crate of thousands of disco records and the count of three, he's going to blow them up real good. One, two, three. And you see about five minute explosions go off in the beginning. And then all of a sudden, you see a huge explosion with literally chunks of records flying in the air. Some as high as 250 feet. And the crowd goes delirious. And you hear Dahl again screaming to the mic, yeah, that blowed up real good. So Dahl, he gets back in his Jeep. He does a victory lap around the warning track. And because of all the shower, uh, the debris that's showering on top of them, the driver basically says, fuck this. And he dri- drives out of the park with Steve, Steve Dahl. And, you know, Steve Dahl at this point, he has no idea about the chaos he's about to leave in his wake. One thing is for certain, Dahl admits as he wrote out of Comiskey that he made the right choice moving to Chicago. Now, Comiskey had like these portable ticket booths outside, and they were usually run by older guys like me. And upon hearing the explosions in the stadium, the thousands of kids outside began shaking these booths in moss. So, Mike Vec, he ordered a bunch of the park security to go outside to handle this, you know, little minor uprising. And this would be a decision he would regret later. Once uh, the fans inside the ball, uh, the bowl, they saw these large numbers of security scrambling to leave the inside. The crowd became empowered and ready to make a statement. So, with the first game of the book, uh, nervous White Sox pitcher Ken Kravick, he began pitching in the bullpen, but he was totally creeped out by the hooligans who were near him, so he decided to go to the mound and start his warm-up for game two. And while he's warming up, 
the pot is almost percolated at this point, and it's about to blow. And on the telecast, you can see a slow proliferation of fans streaming onto the field behind him as he warms up. First one, then three, then ten, then a hundred. And as Tiger catcher Lance Parrish called it, it was a veritable prison, a prison break. As by now, the fans had taken over the field by the thousands. And it was then that Mike Vec knew he was in trouble. Play-by-play announcer Jimmy Pearsall was so angry. And he took the microphone and he let all of these hooligans know how he felt about them. I mean, he was irate. Jimmy Pearsall back in the ballpark, and I'm sure glad. I hope they don't let you people see what's going on here at Comiskey Park. One of the saddest sights I've ever seen in a ballpark in my life. This garbage of demolishing a record has turned into a fiasco. My guest right now is Bill Gleason. And Bill, after all the years you've been in baseball, I know you have never seen anything like this. Nor has anyone else, except after the uh, final game of a World Series in Shea Stadium. And folks, my words can never fully explain the madness that ensued that night. I really hope that some of you take a look at this. you, you got to find some clips on, on YouTube to fully appreciate what I'm saying to you. You had kids sliding down the foul poles from the top, uh, literally causing the roof to shake. You had a fire, a fire, out in the center field grass, you know, as this, like, remnant of the explosion with people dancing around it and hurtling it. Guys were smoking weed, drinking brews in the dugout. Uh, a couple was having sex behind second base. The people were completely out of control as a mob mentality had clearly taken over. And while pandemonium was reigning supreme inside the horse historical jewel box stadium, Dahl and his entourage were now outside of the stadium making their way back in to the press box unaware of the actions of his fans. And when they got to the press box, Meyer remembers vividly walking by a monitor and doing a double take because he can't believe what he's seeing. Their fans had literally taken over the White Sox playing field. And that was he and Dawes' first inclination that something had gone seriously wrong. With an angry boot staring a hole in the Dawes' forehead, Mike decided for now the best course of action was uh, to let them have their moment. Hopefully the crowd will disperse as he felt, you know, like a, a crackdown by forceful cops would only escalate the situation. And the Tigers team sitting in the clubhouse, they were flat, flabbergasted by the images on TV. And a few of them walked down to the dugout wearing batting helmets and carrying bats to get a better look at the crazy scene. At some point, Channel 44 and WSNS, they made a decision to not show what was going on and they dumped out to alternative programming. Soon thereafter, Bill Vick comes onto the field and pleads with the mob to return to your seats, but to no avail. This is Bill Vick. Please clear the park or we'll have to call out the game and close the park. And the television cameras are not on you. So please clear the field. 
And the mob then begins to chant for Harry Carey, the famous Chicago icon announcer, who at this time was calling games for the White Sox. And Harry would plead his case from the from the from the booth, but the rioters would not hear of it. Even the Comiskey organist began playing Take Me Out to the Ball Game with Harry singing it to quell the crowd, but nothing worked. At one point, Dahl wanted to dress the crowd, but the, the Sox had had enough with him at this point, and they basically told him to sit down and be quiet. After 37 minutes of sheer pandemonium, the Chicago police finally stepped in. And in those days, the 1979 Chicago Police Department had like this no-nonsense, no-bullshit reputation. And once the rambunctious rioters got a glimpse of the CPD coming out on the uh, field in riot gear, it was game over. As everyone started running and looking for escape routes off the field. When the police stepped on the field, they were applauded by the actual baseball fans and the White Sox fans who had not left their seats and were waiting for game two of this doubleheader. It's probably, historically speaking, the one time the CPD was given an ovation like that. Within three minutes, the field was clear. And the baseball fans left of the park started singing a little sha-na-na-na, hey, 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 goodbye. 38 people would be arrested. But now, the status of Game 2 was still in question. You know, what with the pile of records in center field, you know, still smoldering and, you know, a missing home plate. Somebody stole fucking home plate. So, Tigers manager Sparky Anderson who I talk about rather extensively in our Big Red Machine show in the archives. He was making his first sojourn into Comiskey after a decade of managing in the National League. And he told White Sox manager Don Kessinger and the umpires he would not be sending his team back out there under any circumstances. Bill Veck really had no argument. The umpires acquiesced. The second game was canceled, and League President Lee McPhail would later eventually determined the second game as a forfeit loss for the White Sox. After the cancellation was official, Bill Veck took a microphone and told remaining fans that the game would not be played, and he implored that the fans keep their stubs for a makeup game. As for Dahl, he had been fired in December, he got the loop gig in March, and by July he thought for sure he was going to be out on his ass again. Because in his mind, someone had to pay for that. And also in his mind, it was going to be him. The president of the radio station saw him in the box and told him not to talk about what happened on the air the next day under any circumstances. So all night, Dahl is wrestling with this order. And about 10 minutes into the show... This is what he said. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. How's your throat? Uh, it's only about half here today. Whoa. About ten minutes into the show, I just couldn't do it, and I just, you know, unloaded. You know, I went out to the ballpark last night and enjoyed 
a baseball game. Yeah, can you say bad cola lips? <laughs> sure. You maniacs. We were out in the middle of the field, of course, the world's largest disco uh, demolition. We thought there'd be no problem. <laughs> 67,000 insane co-holifs out there last night. 67,000. It was you, maniacs, out on the field, jumping through bonfires. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, 43 years later, the promotion is still seen through multiple lenses. Some feel promotions are meant to maximize ticket receipts, and in that regard... Disco Demolition Night was a success, while others feel like it was a misplaced, poorly executed promotion that will forever be the worst promotion ever. And still, there is this third notion that really all that Disco Demolition Night proved to be was an all-out assault on black and Latino art, as well as the homosexual community. Now, Vec and Dahl will laugh at this suggestion. And do I feel like Vec and Dahl were evil-intentioned guys looking to stamp out art form from people of color? No, I truly don't. But one thing I know is when mob mentality takes over, fringe elements of real character begin to show in your face in the mob. And it makes people complicit by their acceptance and standing with them. And sometimes it's ugly. To think that it had absolutely zero to do with a cultural art form of genocide is just a silly 1979 ignorant perspective. Most of us have evolved above that by now. You know, most of us. The Bee Gees had said in various interviews that disco demolition above anything else was responsible for the death of disco in that context. Uh, The next year... It wasn't even part of the Grammys, award ceremonies anywhere. There was no disco uh, uh, topic or disco category after this event. First, the disco stations began dying, drying up overnight. Some went back to rock formats, and nationally, this was the case as well. But here's the real funny thing. Doll didn't really kill disco. It just went underground and was renamed dance music. In fact, Chicago house music legend Vince Lawrence was an usher at Comiskey on that night. And, you know, he was inspired by the raw disco edits of DJ Frankie Knuckles. Well, Lawrence and his friend Jesse Sanders, they wrote the first house single to achieve mainstream success in 1984, setting the Chicago house vibe standard. And it also set the Chicago icon on a trajectory with this underground genre of music now. Meanwhile, let's be honest. Artists like Michael Jackson and Madonna in the 80s, the early 80s, they were basically disco acts in all but name. Facts. Lawrence has often said in public that Dahl is either naive or dishonest. And I truly believe he's he's not being dishonest. He, He certainly believes it, but he's certainly naive, which, hey, That was the world in 1979. Like the Hall Hall of Famer Bill Veck once said, there are some promotions that work too well. And I think this is where I'm going to wrap it up, folks. There are so many sources uh, to really look into if if you're interested in this. 
Uh, I guarantee you, this is going to be talked about a hundred years from today. So, there's all kinds of stuff on YouTube. You should definitely check some of it out. The video is just captivating. Also, my main man and producer, TJ, the head Gordon, he gave me the audio book copy of Bill Vett, Baseball's Greatest Maverick by Paul Dixon. And it's got a whole chapter dedicated to Disco Night Demolition. If you're inside the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network Facebook room, hit up John Cop. He was there that night, and he has some crazy stories to tell about it. So, another show in the can, and this train moves on. Please remember to hook a brother up with the love. Share your seam head uh, content with good brothers and sisters about the good brother Jake the Snake. Bringing that free baseball smoke every Tuesday. I'm here to preach the gospel of baseball to the world. It's what I was born to do. Next week, I can't wait to dig into the life of one of my favorite baseball players ever. One of the greatest pure athletes. uh, One of the greatest pure hitters to ever step on a ball field. I'm talking, of course, about the international hit king himself, Ichiro Suzuki. Man, I'm so psyched to finally reach the second week of May. I've had this circled on the calendar for months now. But hey, that's another story for another podcast. Here on Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, looking bored, by all means, take him or her outside and play a game of catch. Thank you all for coming out. God bless and win the day. I love you, Chicago.